Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast. Just when you thought barefoot minimalism was the latest trend in running footwear, Hoka One One completely turned the tables by introducing runners to what is now called maximal running shoes. The maximalism concept, debuted by Hoka in 2010, appears to be gaining some serious momentum. But what exactly is a maximal shoe? Simply speaking, maximal shoes are extremely soft, typically seen with oversized foam midsoles, and designed to provide more cushioning and in theory reduce muscle fatigue. For well-read runners, this new type of shoe flies in the face of what they have been reading about minimalist shoes ever since Born to Run was published. Don't overly cushioned shoes encourage you to develop poor form? To help answer that question and provide some answers is Hoka Oneone brand president Jim Van Dyne, who is going to explain the technology and research behind the maximal shoe movement. Among the topics Jim and I discussed were the history of Hoka Oneone as a brand, the new maximal trend in running shoes, Hoka's recent involvement in the track and shorter distance races, and the future and goals of the brand. We'd like to thank Jim for his time and wish him and his team at Hoka the best of luck in the upcoming years. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash running interviews slash Hoka Oneone. Thanks for listening. So Jim, why don't we start by tell us a bit about yourself and um, how you came to work for Hoka. Well, uh pretty long story, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to be somewhat concise. Um, first time, my background, the only reason I'm in the shoe business is because I'm a runner. Uh, 35 years ago, or thereabouts, Angel Martinez, who's now the chairman and CEO of Deckers overall, uh, hired me 35 years ago to work in the uh, outlet store for Runner's World magazine, which at the time was based here in the Bay Area. Um, I had been a school teacher, and I ran in college. I went to college on a cross-country track scholarship. Uh, and then after college, I was uh, still running and running well enough that I thought, you know, I want to—I don't want to be the age I am now and wonder how good I could have been. So I decided to take what I thought was going to be a temporary liaison from a temporary hiatus, I should say, from my uh, teaching career to pursue my running for a few years and. So Angel hired me at that at that store. Then he and I ended up opening our own store and you know, up here in the Bay Area, a running store. And uh, that kept, uh, I've been in the shoe business ever since. I went back to teaching. So I've been in a variety of positions with a variety of brands over the years, primarily Reebok in the 80s, Deckers in the 90s. And then uh, I was a co-founder of the brand Key uh, in 2003. Um, did that for a few years. I uh, was a president there and took that brand from zero to $100 million in three years. When we first started, I was the only full-time employee, so that was quite a ride. Then uh, divested myself from my interest in Keen because uh, the primary principal owner and I didn't see eye to eye. So uh, so I left and formed my own brand, Anu, along with a couple of other founders, Jacqueline, and my wife, and uh, a woman named Jenny Fredericks. So we formed the Anu brand in 2007, six really, the end of 2006, and we ultimately sold it to Decker. So I was back at Decker for a second time. So I was running the uh, Anu brand, and I was approached by Johnny Halberstadt, the founder and owner of Boulder Running Company, one of the absolute best running specialty shops in the country. 
And he called me a few years ago to say there's this new brand called Hoka, Hoka 1-1, and he says the product is amazing. It's absolutely revolutionary. It will change. He says, I think it will change how running shoes are made going forward, and it's phenomenal. And, you know, I thought, well, I know Johnny pretty well from all the years in the shoe business. I thought, well, Johnny's given to a little hyperbole from time to time. But on the other hand, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Johnny, so I better listen to this. So I, I forwarded that on to um, to Angel. Again, he's president and chairman of, of Decker's overall corporately. And one thing led to another. Uh, it took a couple of years, but we finally realized, uh, got the French guys to realize that they were better off selling to Deckers, that they would never get Hoka off the ground. And they had tried for a couple of years and really made very, very little impact. Uh, by 2012, for example, their total sales in the United States were just a little over $2 million, which is tantamount to nothing. So I convinced... Deckers, on hell and the board of directors at Deckers, that we should buy Hoka. So we did. And that was at the end of 2012. So I then became brand president of Hoka. Uh, and my wife now runs Anu and I run Hoka. But we're both headquartered in the same office up here in the Bay Area. So that's how I came to get involved with Hoka. Long, long story about my Long, long background in running, long background in the footwear industry with a variety of brands. And uh, I think fate led it all to this point where I'm finally back in running again, how I started the shoe business in the first place, and with a, with an unbelievable product and an unbelievable brand, and we're exploding now in 2013 and 2014. So 2012, we finished at $2 million. 2013, we finished at about $10 million, and we're tracking to... Uh, globally to about 45 billion this year. So it's really explosive growth. That's incredible. So where did yeah. you go to school? Where did you run? I ran for Boise State University in Idaho. And did you ever figure out what your true potential was after school? No, because I... Uh, or just never got around to I it. Mean, I started. I started to. I, I qualified to the U.S. National Cross Country Team in 1979. So I thought I was on my way to a national or world-class level. Well, I was at the national level. And then uh, just a couple weeks after I made the team, I was pacing uh, Bill Rogers. Do you know who Bill Rogers is? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. So I was pacing Bill Rogers to a world record in the 25 kilometers on the track. He did set the world record, but I uh, suffered a career-ending injury. I didn't know it was a career-ending injury for about four more years because I kept trying to come back, but I was never again able to train at the same level that I had been previously. And you can't be a world-class runner on 40 or 50 a week. You know, you, you got to rerun at least 80 or 100, and uh, I was no longer able to do that type of training. So I kept trying for a few years while we had our store, uh, but I never again was able to train or compete at that level that I reached in 1979. And what did you do to yourself? Well, it was primarily, it was a, if you're familiar with running injuries, it was not one thing. It was a succession of things. It was originally the left knee uh, from doing all those turns, you know, on a track, 25 kilometers on a track, in track spikes, by the way. Um, and so my left knee, I got just classic chondromalacia is what it was, but at that time, sports medicine wasn't nearly as well developed as it is now. So it took me a while to come back from the knee, but then it was a succession of things. You, you know, first it was the left knee, then it was the right, right, uh, 
right foot, then it was the left hip, and just back and forth succession of things. So finally, I gave up my competitive running career in 1983. That's a, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, it sounds like you're making just as big of an impact on the running world now, or probably even bigger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My individual running success would not have met <laughs> put a big impact on the on the running community overall. Just my running, you know. It coached some some runners. I coached a a woman who was ranked seventh in the world in the marathon. A uh, woman named Lori Binder ran two thirty three back in nineteen eighty two or three. So I had a little impact back then. And I trained, coached trained a lot, lots and lots of runners. So I gave up coaching in the eighties when I started to pursue my career. Football more seriously. Well, that's very cool. So now, can you tell us a bit about about Hoka as a company? Kind of how how did the company come to be? Who founded it, and what were some yeah, of their early attempts um, like? It was two guys, two Frenchmen, uh, primarily a guy named Nico Mermoud, who is a ultra marathoner and adventure racer, and Jean Luc Diard. Jean-Luc Giard uh, had a long career with Solomon, ended up being CEO of Solomon, actually, but he left them by then, and uh, he was doing some freelance work, and he's really a tremendous product innovator. Um, He's the one in his team developed parabolic skis, for example, which was a complete game-changer in the world of skiing. And uh, so Nico went to to Jean-Luc and and Jean-Luc's small team of developers and designers with a request to, uh, to to develop and design a shoe that would help him, especially in the latter stages of his ultra races. And so uh, Jean-Luc was toying with the idea of oversize, thinking back to how in the 1970s, oversize reinvented tennis rackets, and then in the 80s, oversized golf clubs, and the 90s, oversized bicycle wheels. So he wanted to try that approach for running shoes. So rather than take existing running shoes and look at, how, look at how he might improve those, he took a complete blank slate as if he was inventing running shoes for the first time. And what they did is they took a giant, just big, giant, oversized slabs of EVA and put them on a bunch of runners and started carving the midsole and playing with different geometries. And this is much like what he had done for years in ski ski racing, where, you know, they develop a ski, put it on some elite athletes, take some runs in the skis, and then depending upon how the skis felt to them and what the turning was and the edges and that, they would carve the skis uh, to customize them for top skiers and, and net result being changing skiing overall, ski, their skis overall in their brand. So he did the same thing with runners, a very, very different approach. Uh, that has, has, you know, been used previously in shoe design. So he literally started carving and shaping the shoes and playing with geometry. For example, uh, the on the medial side, there are there's some convex angles to it, and on the lateral side, there's some concave carvings into the insole. Um, so to make it kind of a natural, without using double density, which is what most running shoes companies are medial posting in, Although I can use geometry and angles to provide a more stable uh, foot plant while still giving you, you know, maximum cushioning, much more cushioning uh, and cushioning material than in any other shoe. 
So he kind of figured out what, what I always thought was the holy grail of running. How can you maximize cushioning without making the shoe inherently unstable, which, you know, in and of itself can cause many problems with shock care. But he was able to do that, and he and his team, with uh, by taking the upper and, and burying it a little deeper into the midsole, which most running shoes do that, but not to the extent that Hoka does. Um, and with the, the geometry, as I mentioned, uh, and then with a rocker uh, sole and midsole. So a rocker, a true rocker, which is what we have in all of our Hoka shoes, involves more than just the radius, uh, uh, you know, providing a radius edge to the heel and forefoot, uh, you know, curving it up a little bit. It's much more than that. It's also being very stiff in the forefoot. So we are intentionally stiff where other shoes are intentionally flexible. That's another aspect. So people who think that, um, you know, obviously when you first see a Hoka shoe, you're struck by the size of it. And most people then tend to oversimplify and think, oh, well, that's, that's all it is. It's an oversized midsole. But there's a lot more to it than that. There's the geometry and the uh, rocker uh, effect, all which com combine to provide maximum cushioning, a stable foot plant, and uh, encourages a more efficient, uh, efficient foot strike overall. So there, there's a lot less pressure on your forefoot, on your metatarsals, et cetera, uh, while still providing maximum shock absorption and stability. So it's really an involved system. It's not just a shoe. But uh, so that's how that's how they started. It took them actually a few years. They were toying around with this idea for quite some time and experimenting with the different geometries and sizes and dimensions and whatnot. And finally developed their first shoe called the Mafate, and that was introduced into the U.S. in 2010. But like I said, they were they did not have the resources to really build out the brand the way that we now can with the resources and technology. They didn't have the financial resources, you know, to, to they put into development or even to buy inventory, uh, nor did they have any experience really in, in managing a shoe brand, uh, especially here in the United States. So when Johnny Halberstadt, that guy from Boulder, called me, basically I went in to their organization and did an analysis of their resources, of their cash flow model, of uh, basically you know looked under the hood and. and the overall engine of how they ran their business, and, and it became clear to me that they were not going to be able to make it. And so then we, that, that is, like I said, when I convinced Tetris to buy, to try to buy the brand, and then, of course, we had to convince them that they needed to sell to us, which uh, which we did. They realized that, yes, they, they had much greater chance of success selling to Deckers. So they sold to Deckers at the end of 2012, um, they're still involved with the brand. John Luke has just re-signed an extended contract to be with us for at least three more years. And he and his team of developers are still in Odyssey, France, working on our advanced concepts and long-term product development. So we still have those product geniuses, if you will, working on newer products. We're coming out with all kinds of new stuff as well. I've seen the, uh, the whole line of Hoka shoes, and I'm very intrigued to uh, to try some of them because it's it's really bucking the trend of of shoes at this point, which is has been for a long time more toward the minimal side versus the the maximal side. Yeah, well, we had basically Hoka invented maximal. There was no maximal before Hoka, uh, but you're right. The trend has been minimal, but that trend has declined dramatically, as you probably know, over the last few years. 
to the extent that it's almost non-existent anymore in run specialty. Very, very little minimal shoes uh, out there. The minimal statistics, when you read, if you look at Leisure Tent, Tent, or any of the larger research firms, it'll show a much higher percentage of minimal shoes than there really are in the marketplace uh, because they include the Nike Free. Yes. And the Nike Free, as you probably know, is one of the most popular casual shoes in the world at this point. Uh, but it's not really a minimal running shoe the way we used to think of them in terms of Deep Up or Ultra or some of those other brands. Absolutely. So you mentioned that the, the first model, the Mafate, came out in 2010. What, what were some of those early attempts and efforts like, and how did they, uh, how did they go over with, with the people that, that, that bought them? Well, consumers, especially ultramarathoners, adopted the brand quickly. Nico, one of the founders, like I said, is an ultramarathoner, and he's well-networked and knows all the top ultramarathoners in the world, so he was giving away shoes and signing athletes, and it quickly, the buzz quickly spread throughout the ultra-running community, but not much beyond that, except in Boulder and that area where Johnny was really launching the brand and, and through his store, his three stores and a website. But beyond Boulder and beyond the ultra running community, it wasn't very much. Like I said, in 2000, they grew every year from 2010 to 2012, but they, at the end of three years, they were only a little over $2 million in sales in the U.S., which, like I said, is tantamount to nothing. So they really didn't have much. They had... a less than 100 retailers nationwide. Uh, and many of those retailers would try the product, or maybe like the product, and have consumers uh, in their store like the product. But because of the limited financial resources, Hoka never had shoes for reorders or, or fill-ins or anything. So a lot of retailers, even if they liked the shoes, they wouldn't commit to the brand because running specialty relies on fill-ins and at-once orders. And if you can't do that, provide that service to them, provide the products when they need them, you know, they're not going to invest in your brand. So it really was just kind of stop, start, stop, start, not really going anywhere for the first few years. Were there any, like, big events or big marketing things that um, either of the two Frenchmen tried to do? No, like, no, not really. Like I said, they didn't have any money, so they okay. couldn't, you know, no, they, they were... I think they, like I said, they signed a few ultra runners, right. like Carl Meltzer, who's one of the great ultra runners in in history. Uh, and he became an advocate for Hoka, but primarily because he loved the shoes and they helped him run, not because of money or anything. Yeah. But uh, so no, they really they beyond Nico running around giving away shoes here. There really wasn't any. They didn't even have a catalog, so they really were struggling, and they would not have. They would not have been successful. They probably would have almost certainly gone out of business. Yeah, that would that would have been rather unfortunate because the shoes are, are definitely very intriguing. Beyond the well, they're obvious, amazing. I mean, we have we have thousands thousands of people, myself included. Uh, I had to stop virtually stop running. I, I would say I suffered two two deaths in running. The first was when I had to retire from being a competitive runner, and at that point in my life, you know. Competitive running was my life. You know, I was more of a runner than I was an employee or a boyfriend or a, you know, I mean, running was my whole identity. So when I had to retire from competitive running, it was almost like a death for me and I was pretty depressed for a while. But at least I could still run for fitness sake. And so I did that for until I was about 50. And then when I was about 50, 
my right knee had deteriorated to the point that the, uh, my doctor said, you know, you, you should stop running altogether. Uh, there's, you know, there's no way to fix your knee without a complete knee rebuild. And frankly, I wouldn't advise that so that a 50-year-old guy might be able to jog again. So I had to stop running that, but I didn't really stop. What I did is I, I jogged three miles every Sunday just to prove to myself I could still jog three miles, you know. And then when I discovered Hoka personally, it was like a rebirth for me because I was back to running virtually every day. I'm now running 25 miles a week and have been you know, since I started with Hoka. So, and we get testimonials like that every day, day in and day out. In fact, we got an unsolicited letter uh, just last week from Steve Holman. I don't know if you know who Steve is. Absolutely. He was, yeah, he was probably the greatest American miler of the, of the 1990s. And Steve read it, sent us an unsolicited email out of the blue just saying basically a story similar to what I just told you. He said, My, I've been injured consistently for the last six or seven years. I haven't been able to run much. I keep trying to build up, and then I get re-injured. He said, then I discovered Hoka, and I'm running injury and pain through. And he said, I've never written a letter to any company about any brand, but I had to tell you this because I'm a huge fan. So we get, we get testimonials not necessarily from famous people like Steve, but people all the time are, are saying that. So while we don't have the scientific data to support the claim yet, although we're building scientific data, that we reduce injuries, and it's very difficult to make that claim for claim-based marketing. It's very risky from a legal standpoint. You're opening yourself up to lawsuits and the like. So we don't, make, we don't state the claim outright that we will prevent, help prevent or reduce injuries. But the anecdotal data that we have to support that claim is absolutely overwhelming to hear it every day. I've heard many, many stories just like that, just like yours and Steve's and many others who, yeah, who just yeah. couldn't who couldn't move anymore. And uh, it, it's interesting that it's kind of the same story as a lot of people in uh, the, the, a lot of the original people who were wearing Vibrams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Vibram kind of did us a favor because so many people got hurt <laughs> trying to run and. and in, in their uh, minimalist product that uh, has been a swim back over to to Hoka. And now, as you may be aware, other brands are more or less copying Hoka with making products with oversized midsoles and making claims about um, a better ride and more protection and things like that. Brooks has done that. New Balance has done that. Sketches has done that. Ultra has done that. Uh, we hear that other brands are also... Uh, experimenting with oversized product, but so far the product that those other brands have been delivered to the market do not provide the same feel or benefit that Hoka does because they haven't put the whole system together. All they did is make an oversized pencil, as I explained to you earlier, that's far more uh, involved than, than just that. Yeah, and those the two things that Hoka is doing, especially with the the, geom the geometric stability, is something that other brands I think have done. I know Adidas has tried to do it with a couple of shoes, and I was just going to ask you about what what are uh, what's some of the competition that's coming up because obviously Hoka is is wildly popular at the moment, and I'm sure all the all the uh, quote unquote major companies want a piece of the action. So what's uh, what, well, what are I, what yeah. are some products that are trying to compete with Hoka? Well, those are the ones that I know of. I don't know what's going on in the product development centers for the other brands necessarily, what they're working on. You know, the, the shoe business, the athletic shoe business, the development process is very long. So, like, right now, we're, we're working on uh, 
fall 15. So, uh, you know, it, it takes quite a while to develop a shoe. And what they've done thus far, the other brands that I mentioned, have come out with shoes that are somewhat like Hoka, but they're not Hoka, uh, as I said. Now, long term, will, will the other brands figure it out and de-engineer uh, Hoka shoes that they could then re-engineer for their brands? More than likely, that, that is happening at most brands. I think we hear that. That's the, the rumors that we hear, and it only makes sense. We think that, um, that running shoe designs may well be changed forever, much like tennis. Uh, you know, no one even calls tennis rackets oversized anymore. They're all, they're all oversized, so you know, there's no need to say oversized. There's no such thing as a, as a racket of, of the conventional size that was, at least that was conventional in the 1970s. You know, all, all rackets are oversized, and we think uh, most all training shoes anyways will uh, eventually be influenced by Hoka and be some sort of oversized because the, the benefits are just obvious and, and overwhelming. So, Hoka so shoes. So our challenge then is our challenge then is to continue to innovate and do other things involving geometry and materials and dimension, which is what we're doing now. We'll have shoes coming out this this fall um, that are still very much Hoka like in that they're oversized, but they're not as they're not as large as as some of the initially uh, early shoes, and they're not. Um, and they involve other materials that we're working with, too, that other, other brands do not have access to. And our challenge is to continue to innovate and stay ahead of the competition. That's our challenge. And to grow the brand uh, very quickly and invest a lot of marketing dollars, which we're now doing, um, to, uh, to quickly establish ourselves before we can be overwhelmed by these giants. I always say, we're one David fighting six or seven Goliaths. That would be interesting. So It is interesting. <laughs> it's a daily, it's very interesting, and it's a daily challenge. But it's fun. It's really fun, real fun. So the thing that people may or may not know about Hoka shoes is that um, while they look, frankly, a little funny with their with the with the midsole as thick as it is, they're also uh, relatively minimal in that they're fairly flat in in inside. Is that part of yes, the geometry that is part scheme? Of the ge yes, that is part of the geometry that I'm talking about. Our our drop, heel to forefoot drop, is anywhere between two and six and a half. But they're not, you're right, it doesn't conform to what was standard up until the minimal thing was more of a 10 to 12 millimeter drop. So uh, Hoka was influenced in that regard, you're, you're correct. So it seems like Hoka is kind of the other end of the spectrum. The Vibram shoes really changed a lot of shoes and making a lot more of them, not 10 or 12 millimeters, except too many people got stress fractures and tore their Achilles tendons in half. So now we're going the right. other way with things like Hoka. Where right, so, the, 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 so that geometry of the minimal drop, which as you know encourages a forefoot, more of a mid or forefoot strike, um, that is part of, of Hoka for sure. But we, So we agree with that geometry, but we provide it in a protected environment rather than the unprotected environment that Vibram uh, did. Absolutely. So, something that's uh, been in the news in the running world recently is that Hoka has started to become involved in, in the track and some shorter distances, yes. with a, yes. mostly in the signing of 800-meter runner Mike Rutt out of New Jersey. Yes. Um, what yes. Was the, what's the rationale behind that move? 
Well, we believe, I believe, we all believe that Hoka is for all runners, not just ultra runners, and that even the most elite runners can benefit from uh, from protection on their recovery days. And let's face it, as an elite athlete, as I once was, they usually run 12 to 13 times a week, right? Twice a day, Monday through Saturday, and a long run on Sunday is pretty typical for an elite athlete. Yes. And... Uh, and all those morning runs, almost by definition, are recovery runs. And several of the afternoon runs are also recovery runs, you know, after a hard interval workout or hard fartlek workout or hill, hillwood piece or whatever. So why not have that in your quiver of shoes to have a, a, a shoe that will help you run a 10 or 12-mile recovery run and not feel the, as beat up as a result because we're providing so much more protection and cushioning. Um, also, we are... Um, we are making shoes. We will ultimately make shoes of all dimensions because we don't think that um, necessarily all runners, anybody who says that one shoe is the perfect shoe for everybody is, is telling, telling a lie because that's not true. My, my experience of selling thousands of pairs of running shoes one pair at a time to thousands of different runners made it clear to me that there's no, there's no panacea. There's no one shoe that works for everybody. So we will ultimately make shoes of all dimensions. We're in, we're in the process of developing spikes right now. I read that that uh, Mr. Rutt was was in theory going to have some going to have a spike by early summer or so. Yep, we're, we're we're shooting for that. So what does a Hoka spike look like? Just a regular track well, spike. Well, the the first ones that we have this year, yeah, we're not able to really do much in such a short period of time. Um, We'll, we'll have our athletes in what are pretty conventional spikes. But longer term, hopefully by spring 15, we will have spikes that uh, truly are innovative and different than, uh, than conventional spikes. And Jean-Luc and his team are working on that right now. I've done, some, done a decent amount of track running. In fact, my uh, Achilles heel, such as it is when it comes to running, was about three inches lower than your initial uh, injury. With four different wow. stress fractures in that, uh, is it the tibia, tibia, fibula, one yeah. of the two? Yeah, tibia, tibia. Yes, four different stress fractures yeah. in the same spot. Yeah, I, I've had, uh, I've had six stress fractures <laughs> in various spots, mostly on my right tibia. Where do um, so uh, so aside from becoming more innovative and staying ahead of the competition, where do you see Hoka as a brand kind of going in the future? Well, we see it. Um, you know, my, my main responsibility, I feel, is to create a brand platform that will allow us to grow uh, and be a, a major player in the sport of running. And if we're able to do that um, and we're successfully distributed in sporting goods and athletic specialty in addition to run specialty, well, then we may branch out into other sports as well. Uh, I'm not sure that we'll do that, but my job is to create a brand that does not have a, a ceiling on it is the way I look at it. Um, I think back to Phil Knight, and when Phil Knight founded Nike in the late 1960s, basically as knockoff to Onitsuka Tiger shoes back then, which is what they were for the first few years, um, I don't think Phil thought that a little more than a decade and a half later that Nike basketball shoes would be the fashion currency in inner-city America. But as we both know, by the 1980s, it was very much that. 
and remain so <laughs> to this day. They have a lot of athletes, but they're also athletic fashion and they're in, many, they're in every athletic category there is. So, again, I don't think Phil necessarily was thinking of basketball shoes when he first started making, uh, making the Tiger knockoffs, but he created a brand based on the glory to be achieved in the pursuit of athletic excellence, and that brand platform ultimately allowed them to move into other other athletic categories with credibility and, and ultimately a lot of success. So I'm not saying that we're definitely making going to be making basketball shoes necessarily, but I think my job is to, to create a brand that will allow growth uh, into any footwork category ultimately. I'm envisioning Hoka basketball shoes and also things like Hoka soccer cleats and I'm not really sure what to think. Well, I'm not really sure what to what to think about. Could very well happen. And uh, but as I say, you know, right now we are focused 100 percent on money. Don't don't think for a minute that we're taking our eye off the ball at all. But like I said, creating a brand that ultimately not a product, I said a brand that ultimately could develop into other athletic categories. So. What uh, is there anything that anybody should be aware of when uh, when trying a Hoka shoe out for the first time? Um, the first thing is that it's it's a very different experience the first time you put them on. Uh, you know, you could be blindfolded and put maybe a book shoe on one foot, a Saucony shoe on the other foot, and I would challenge you to blindfold it to, to say what brand did you have on your feet. I couldn't tell unless you won that particular shoe before. But with Hoka, you put a Hoka on blindfolded, you know you're in a different type of shoe. You know you're in a Hoka because of the experience. It's so much more Christian. So the first thing is that's the obvious uh, obvious thing, it's a new experience. And for some runners, it may take a while to get used to that. Um, it did take me, honestly, a few days. Like the first thing, I wasn't sure if I really liked it. I tried it again the next day because I was used to getting a little bit more response. And the first shoe that I tried was the Mahate, which was, is still by far the biggest Hoka. And, but after three days of running in it, I realized, well, I can get used to this because I can get used to my knee not hurting, and my knee doesn't hurt. Uh, so what shoe, so for some, and some runners feel awesome in it from, from you know, first run. But some runners, like me, takes a little get, getting used to. Um, it also depends on which model. Um, each model has a, has a slightly different feel. They all feel very well cushioned and protective, but they have different ride characteristics based on based on our rocker geometry. Some some shoes like the Bondi have the the rocker uh, is what we call an early stage rocker, so you get more forefoot propulsion. Uh, the Stinson, for example, has a late-stage rocker. You don't get as much propulsion, uh, so it's not quite as fast as you possibly, um, but you're more stable, and there's a little more cushion in it. So it's a, it's a different ride. And like I said, by July, we will have two other new shoes in the market that are still oversized, but they'll feel far different and far lighter. The other thing that people notice, almost everybody that picks up a Hoka goes, wow, I didn't expect it to be this light. Well, we'll have shoes coming out this this July that'll be 
much lighter than any current Hobo. You know, she's called the Clifton. That comes in at about 7.6 ounces. I've tried both of the shoes light. you're... I've tried on both the shoes you're referring to. Where'd you get? Where'd you get a hold of one to try on? I happened to be in my lo- in my in the running store uh, where I live, and the rep was here. Oh, Showing okay. The shoe line. I was gonna say the only shoes that are out there right now are salesman samples. We'll we'll have adjusted, made some adjustments to those products by the time they come out in July. We adjusted the last, and we adjusted the fit a little bit. But yeah, those those give you a, a basic feel for what the new shoes are like. Yeah. So is there anyone who you think wouldn't be comfortable in a Hoka shoe or shouldn't wear a Hoka shoe? I, I haven't found anyone yet. Um, although it's a, you know, again, like I said, it's a very much an individual and personal choice. As you're probably aware, um, you know, every runner is different. Our, all of our geometries are different. All of our, uh, our needs are different. So, I mean, I'm sure there are runners out there who would, you know, prefer another shoe over Hoka, for sure. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that, that other, you know, not everyone is going to love the way Hoka's feel necessarily, and they may want to stay with their Brooks or their Nike or their Asics or whatever. Um, but in terms of is there a type of runner for which Hoka shoes are contraindicated? No. There's no runner that I should say, oh, stay away from Hoka. <laughs> Unlike, say, there are definitely people who you might say, you might not want to go with a Vibram. Oh, no doubt. I'd be crippled in the two blocks. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, um, I'm sure people, you know, runners are runners do all kinds of different things. Uh, is there anything that you think that you re- might not recommend, any kind of race or anything that you rec- might not recommend Hoka shoes for? Or they, yeah. do you think they're pretty good for anything? Pretty good for anything. I mean, it depends on, again, it depends on the individual, but... Uh, no, uh, by, and, and remember what I'm thinking of your, your experiences with current product and then you did get the unusual but great benefit to try on some of these salesman samples for fall 14, but we're already, we're already finished with spring 15 and working on fall 15 and starting to work on spring 16. So I know what's coming and what's coming is we will have shoes for everything for track racing, for road racing, for training, for trails, for ultra, for any and all types of running. But it, again, it always still comes down to the individual. All of that sounds really, really cool. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm sure all our listeners are too. Well, Jim, thank you very much for your okay. time. Um, well, hopefully that, was, uh, hopefully that was helpful for you. I'm, sh- I'm sure. It's, uh, there, it's, a, it's such a different product from just about anything out there right now. And um, I'm, you know, people always have tons of questions on it, so I th- I'm confident this will answer a whole bunch of them for a lot of people. Oh, good, good. I'm glad. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time, and good you luck bet. with. Thank you. And good luck in the upcoming All years. All right. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. If you have a question about what you heard or feedback you'd like to give, please don't hesitate. You can leave a written comment on the episode, either on our website or through our iTunes page, or you can leave us a voice message. The number for that is 617-356-7969. We'll answer as many of the questions as we can in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening.